John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 869.ez4510, certificate number 19345. Operation Just Cause. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me. I'll, I'll be Mr. Purple. Yeah, not Mr. Purple. Some guy on some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool sounding name. All right, look, if it's no big deal to be Mr. Pink, you want to trade? Hey, nobody's trading with anybody. Just cause what? <laughs> we, used to, we used to do that joke in Blockbuster Video about once a week. There was a, <laughs> do you remember the early 90s thriller Just Cause with, um, I think, Sean Connery and Lawrence Fishburne? No. So I, I've never seen it either. But there was a plethora of these kind of bad Sean Connery thrillers in the early 90s, badly reviewed. And uh, I would always grab that one and be like, hey, do you guys want to get this? And someone would say, why? And I'd say, just because. Uh, People loved it. Yeah. There's no apostrophe before the cause, though. Yeah, I feel like um, I feel like my desire to make that joke and then your story makes me feel bad about my joke. <laughs> That's kind of why I wanted to give you the background. Have you? Do you remember? You remember this time, of course. Uh, uh, 1980s, Reagan era, into the, uh, into the Bush era, early 90s, and with, with some... Clinton hangover of uh, of just being excited about U.S. overseas military adventurism. This so people could not get enough of that on cable news. You know, I uh, I was uh, the target audience for late seventies, early eighties military adventurism. But after the invasion of Grenada and the Falklands War, I transitioned into like a radical peacenik. And so all this stuff, I was no longer excited by it. I was enraged. I was protesting in the streets. I was one of the I was one of the hippies that was out marching around. Well, not me, John. I was supporting the troops. I know you were. I know well, you. I were. mean, it's hard to imagine now because we now live in an era of constant, endless global war. Yeah, isn't that great? And it's fantastic. I know everyone loves it. There's no downside. Me too. As an investor in several. Uh, Munitions factories, <laughs> I am always interested in a new front. We're always looking for military contractors to advertise on Omnibus. Right. We're looking for Raytheon or somebody to, uh, yeah, to buy if, some time. If you want to put your new missile system on the Omnibus, just uh, just write us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. We will load you on the bus. Um, and so it seems odd for people of this area, and I assume I'm speaking to a future war-ravaged Earth where they are still in the middle of... Endless global war. Yeah. They're just listening to us between raids. Right. Thank you, by the way. We appreciate being your voice of uh, voice of the Blitz or whatever. Um, but there was a time not so long ago when the memory of Vietnam had faded a bit. Mm. And, I mean, not for anybody who was there. <laughs> right. Not for anybody. Not for us for, either. <laughs> for Gen Xers, the memory had faded a bit. And the... Uh, you know, the beginning of the current nightmarish war on terror had not happened yet. And so, and cable news, crucially, had just started 24-hour hegemony and needed That's right. It's content. Within the first, what, 10 years of cable news. Right. Uh, I don't know when Ted Turner, when when did CNN start going around the clock? Is early, it, early it's like 80s, 81 or something? But the problem with it was that it, it had a half-hour loop that never changed, right? I mean, they would update 
little bits of it, but it's just David Goodnow on headline news saying the same stuff every yeah, half hour. It wasn't this con. It, it wasn't like a like news anchors standing there like real new real time newsing you. It was you know it was pre recorded. It was like that. watching the 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 Walter Cronkite thirty minute newscast over and over, and it makes me angry that that doesn't exist anymore. Like. You turn on headline news today. They haven't changed the name. Maybe it's HLN now, mm. but it's just reruns of Cold Case. It's like reruns of true crime shows. What really from the nineties? Yeah, but they still the CNN still calls the the station HLN, but it just airs you know twenty cold cases in a row. I remember watching CNN in those early days, just praying for something newsworthy. I mean, because for whatever reason, I, I you would watch thirty minutes of news and then it would recycle and you'd watch it again. Just the idea that it was it was happening that if something did happen, if a plane crashed or or a war started, that it that you'd be the first to know. It was super exciting. We were the first people, I think, for whom foreign policy and natural disasters and stuff became real time real time television entertainment. Yeah. And of course, that led to the the end of the American experiment, right. pretty much. Right. Too bad for us now. <laughs> but it was it was super exciting back then to see, oh, Mount, what's going to happen to Mount Pinatubo? We'll get another update in half an hour. Yeah, um, I, uh, last night I logged onto Twitter to tell some jokes, and whatever the latest foreign policy disaster just rolled in as it was going down, and I felt that I had to comment, of course. And We're recording this in early 2020 when we're at another, you know, in the endless series of flashpoints and the war on terror, which has not reduced my terror at all. No, although— It's, it's really kind of a war-reinforcing terror. Although, you know, the terror that Americans kind of like to, like to experience personally isn't real. You know, like it's Iran— the Iran, like the Babadook, Iran has no capacity to strike against the United States. What Iran is going to do is set off car bombs outside of embassies for the next 25 years. Mm-hmm. So as long as you don't go to an embassy or overseas, well, well yeah, uh, you're but what, fine. But what if you know anyone <laughs> in one of the or armed services? As long as you don't know anyone who is who's not overseas, expecting to be deployed to, to uh, as long Iran as anytime soon. As long as you're not in the military or do not have a child that's going on foreign exchange or do not do business with any multinational corporation. And that's okay. Never go to you the and post I, office. You and I are self-employed and live in Seattle. And in and a we, bunker. we don't actually know that many people <laughs> who... Who are deployed? We do. I got you know. I got a lot of messages last night from people who are either deployed or have family or friends that are deployed, and it was it was shocking to me. I, a friend of the show who listens um, from his bunker said that uh, that a very close friend of his who's in the military police just went to Kuwait like three days. Oh, I saw prior. that. He's like, she's He's over like, there now, and yeah. uh, what can I do? Yeah, she, she. Usually, I have her back, but I retired, and she just went on like a milk run. It's a lot less academic, yeah, for for hundreds of thousands of people, and also the million, the eighty million people who live in Iran. <laughs> and, well, right, and, and who are now going to find hardliners a much more appealing option. The four hundred million people that live in that region, right, right who were already like, um, yeah, kind of amped up. So really. Uh, it was really pernicious, this idea that um, the occasional Reagan-era military venture was a fun thing to watch on TV. Were you in high school in 89? Yes. Desert Storm slash Shield. Right. Um, remember the, uh, remember the, the, the support the troops, we are the world, like that Kevin Costner engineered? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but <laughs> I can still sing it. 89 was also the um, oh, sorry, Operation that, Just Cause, yeah, 89 right? is Just Cause. So yeah, yeah I guess Desert Storm, Desert Shield is 91. 91. Yeah, that's true. I was in ninth grade in 89, and I remember really round-the-clock coverage of— because uh, the inv- there was the U.S. invasion of Panama, and it had a neat three-act structure that our cable anchors loved. I mean, the, the, the seminal moment there is um, Bernard Shaw, John Holloman, and Peter Arnett under a coffee table at the uh-huh. Sheraton or whatever— watching the first bombs fall in Baghdad, and everyone just watching it like it was a video game with green night vision cameras— and Americans just eating it up. Yeah, that was really a spoonful of sugar. And the cool thing about all these military engagements is that they all ended about four days later in resounding victory. And we got used to the idea that when the U.S. declared war, it was good TV, and then it was over by the weekend. The problem with Noriega is that he was such a tin pot dictator, it did not feel 
like he was worthy of that much American attention. And also, even then... You wouldn't send in 30,000 guys for one uh, oh. for one drug lord? Even then, yeah, the his connection to drug money laundering and the way that that had all just recently played out in the arms for hostages uh, sort of scandal of the Reagan administration, we all were very suspicious at this point about CIA and involvement in drug um, trafficking. And so it very much, the stink of conspiracy was on the invasion of Panama and, uh, and particularly See, the code is- name operation just cause really, it was a big, big cesspool. See, this is your peacenik take. You yeah. and your buddies are already talking about how this is just cover up. This is Ollie North all over again, man. Well, it was. And th- this was the, this was the era when we were starting to recognize that the, that the drugs from Panama get turned into crack and s- sewn in the streets of American inner cities, creating an epidemic. You know, we were we were tying it all together. George Bush was the first president with a crack dealer. That's right. As we've covered. So just to set the stage, in 1989, uh, Manuel Noriega, the dictator of Panama, as you mentioned, had been a CIA operative. He had yes. been our guy in the region for decades. But it turned out he was everybody's guy in the region for decades. Reagan Secretary of State George Schultz said, uh, you don't buy Noriega, you only rent him. He's like beer, apparently. Ouch. Because at the same time as he is uh, happily uh, taking a six-figure check from the CIA every year to advance American interests in Central America, because all we cared about. Back then, the, the forum just had one question. It said, do you hate the Sandinistas? Right. And Noriega was like, wait, I get 150000 a year? Oh, yeah. I hate the Sandinistas hate so much. Hate them. But as it turned out, he was also funneling aid to, to the Marxist rebels in El Salvador. He was- Wait a minute. He was giving intelligence to Cuba and other Warsaw Pact nations. Wait a minute. It turned out anybody with an open checkbook, you know, Manuel Noriega became their best friend. And, you know, a, a few decades into his run as- uh, a U.S. CIA asset. He also became president of Panama and <laughs> essentially dictator for life of Panama. And we had recently had very complicated relations with Panama, uh, American public relations wise, because Carter had uh, had negotiated the transfer of the Panama Canal to Panama. During the late 70s. Leaving tens of thousands of U.S. troops based there, but yes, giving them back the canal zone. Which was a, you know, which was a a very controversial thing. And it was, I mean, politically controversial in the sense that people on the right side of the spectrum felt like that that was a betrayal. I will never forget my seventh grade social studies teacher when we were doing Latin American history saying, uh, until the, saying, I, I just remember the end of the sentence, until the canal was given back, thank you very much, Jimmy Carter. And with such venom in her voice suddenly yeah. as she thought about her anger that the Panama Canal Zone was no longer American. Well, you remember the bumper stickers that said, keep our canal giveaway Carter? <laughs> I don't remember those. There was a, I, 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 I hope someone sends us them. Yeah. Keep our canal giveaway Carter. Please mail us your Panama Canal Zone uh, uh, anger. You, you know, that's actually a stickers. palindrome if you. <laughs> <laughs> Retrace Carter. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so yes, uh, the, can, the canal zone had been given back. But leaving a lot of U.S. troops in the area, and as Noriega tightened his hold on power, well, he did a few things. First of all, he started to uh, traffic drugs more flagrantly, right, um, leading to actual indictments in U.S. courts, and was part of the Iran Contra <laughs> yeah, scandal, exactly, right, uh, of the Reagan administration. This was the dawn of Seymour Hersh, too, or not the dawn, but like this was Seymour one Hersh did Vietnam era reporting i think but this was one of his uh this was one of his like later sort of expose right i mean he he did my lay was his his yes. like debut but this was the dawn of him just sitting at like in his new york times uh basically being the um uh, connecting pieces of yarn on a, on a garage yeah, wall. Yeah, the, the right? ronin pharaoh of his time <laughs> right. just like hey guess what guess who called it's Seymour Hersh he uh, and uh, so Noriega, in addition to his drug trafficking, was tightening his grip on power at home. Uh, he had lost a national election because he was just a f- massively unpopular, flaky character. Everyone they called him Pineapple Face. Yeah, he had the which he is had mean. acne. It was he had, mean. He had acne just because this guy is 
murdering political prisoners doesn't mean you can make fun of Zachney scars. Yeah, in my right. opinion, yeah, no, you know what? Punch da- up. Exactly. Punched up. Exactly. Like Trump is fat, but it's not. That's not why we hate him. That's not why we hate him. Well, we don't hate him. No, you know, uh, we, Santa's fat and we love him. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. There you go. So, so there's lots of reasons to hate Noriega. You I'm don't have to call him. This. You don't have to call him Cara de Well, Pina. he's also fat. <laughs> yeah, now I really hate him. <laughs> Maybe you should be eating more pineapple. No, you know what? Instead he was, of having a face and like he's one, short like triple threat. Oh, is he really short? Well, he's not yeah. tall. He's a squat guy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, if he is actually tall, then he's got to be four feet across. He had been soundly beaten in an election, and then. The opposition pre-counted and saw that they had won, and so he nullified the election. Good man. And sent out what he called, this is one of my favorite, dignity battalions to oh. just start beating up opposition protesters and leaders. I mean, that's what I would have done. Dignity battalions is very good. Like, it's got the kind of Orwellian thing where the thing mm-hmm. means it's opposite. You know, the Ministry of Truth does. But really what he's saying is that uh, what ge- what what gives you the most dignity is to beat up your political rivals sure. in the street. sure. They're, they're doing the undignified thing by voting for, for some lefty weirdo with a college diploma instead of the generalissimo. I feel like dignity battalions are things that would appear in those like late 70s German porn movies where there was like always some sort of Nazi dominatrix and... Like Just, a, it's some lady slapping a writing crop yeah, on her hand? dignity battalion. I'm going to take your word for it. The dignity battalions. Uh, and he... And when the... When the U.S. started rattling sabers about these actual indictments in, in courts in Miami or wherever they were, uh, he re- he retaliated by sending his battalions after U.S. soldiers. Again, there's over 10,000 U.S. soldiers stationed in his country. You'd think that would worry him, but no, he just starts having them beat up on the street. What, really? Yeah, the, he doesn't support the troops, John. Huh. Uh, female service members are getting groped and harassed and worse. There, there, there are about 100 of these incidents of these dignity battalion guys just roughing up some some guy out buying souvenirs off the base. It always astonishes me when a uh, when a, like a regional warlord so confident defies the United States to the point that the U.S. is prepared to like go you know like tip over into cruise missile time. And whatever it is, whatever, because there are all kinds of dictators defying the United States all the time, but that they wouldn't be able to read the room if you, well, and know like, wait, they're going to rain bombs down on me if I don't like back up a little. And the weirdest thing about Noriega is that unlike Kim Jong-un or Ahmadinejad or whoever, he literally has multiple U.S. bases in his capital city. You know, he's he's miles away from the nearest Delta Force, SEALs, Special Forces. Right, like one mile away. Yeah. <laughs> but but he also has the phone numbers of like 25 high-ranking members of Congress he, probably he too. He can call right? Ollie North's pager. Yeah, just be like, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. What is it going to take to like settle this all back down? That must be what he thinks. He must think his connections with the uh, the Reagan-Bush axis is, is going to you know keep him safe. And this is all just saber-rattling for the press. Right. He well, as we know, fine. the Bushes like to keep America safe. That's that's their number one thing they do for generations. In fact, the night of, you know, so uh, a few days before Christmas 1989, uh, the U.S. says, no, we're serious. We're going to invade Panama. And Noriega says, nah. And he goes off and gets drunk. Wow. When the, when the uh, you know, when 30,000 U.S. forces arrive in Panama City, they cannot find Noriega. And it's because he happened to be hiding from his wife, the night the invasion started. Wow, this is a man after my own heart. This is what I would have been this doing is what you too. Done? Hiding from my wife and oops, an invasion started. Maybe in your early era. So Noriega's off drunk in a, you know, so they surround the presidential palace and he wasn't there. And his wife doesn't know where he was because he didn't tell her. He went off to get drunk in some rec center at, an air, at a Panamanian Air Force base and had a sergeant go out and find him a prostitute. Genius. And when the troops come and he's like, oh. Bush was serious. He's just, he's dressed in a t-shirt and boxers and flip-flops and he's running for cover and he just heads for his secretary's apartment in the city. Great. He's like, they'll never look at, at, uh, at, uh, Mar-a-Lena's Elena's house right. or whatever. Right. Taxi. And he's right. Days go by and nobody can find the guy. So this is why it's perfect for cable news. So we've secured the Capitol. Right. Tell us what's going on on the ground there, but we don't, Noriega has slipped through the net. 
Uh, he's elusive. That he's guy. in a spider hole, except it's just a suburban apartment. And because this is the pre nine eleven timeline, this all gets wrapped up for in two or three days. You know, on the next day, he makes it to the Vatican embassy. A day later, we start. Um, you may remember we start cranking metal, cranking uh, yeah, classic rock at the Vatican embassy in violation of Vatican II. You know, right? Of course, <laughs> like it should it should have been uh, it should have been Blue Oyster Cult. Or, no, it should have been those Gregorian chants that were so popular <laughs> in the eighties. Sure, was, it should have been that, do, 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 <laughs> that that one song, Sadness Part uh, Zvi or whatever it was. Uh, so wait, how did Noriega get to the Vatican? At what point did he make the transit from his uh, secretary's apartment? Oh, it was just easy. Nobody was watching his secretary's apartment. Why didn't he just stay there? <laughs> well, they were, at some point they're going to, you know, his secretary doesn't have diplomatic immunity. Right. But the Pope does. So he oh, yeah. he's banging on the door, sanctuary, sanctuary, and the nuns take him in. So I knew a guy who was in the army during this invasion was in Panama. My sister's ex boyfriend Damien. What did he? What did Damien do? Damien was an infantryman and uh, and fought actually like like fired bullets and and uh, and like shot people. Uh, securing uh, strategic se- targets. Securing strategic targets, and and so I've talked. I talked to him uh, quite a bit about the invasion, and of course he later became uh, like uh, adjacent to alternative culture enough that he had lots of uh, lots of things to say about the invasion that cons- confirmed our worst yeah, suspicions about. I knew it. The cynical nature of the. We got Damien on our side now. Yeah, Damien was one of us. Uh, the the you know the detail that cable news loved that we were blasting annoying music at the Vatican Embassy to try to get rid of to try to get Noriega out seems like really are we I mean the do real we have, do we have no other angle the real victims are the nuns yeah I mean Noriega did like opera he did not want to hear sticks mm-hmm. um, but in fact the real the, the real story is pretty interesting they uh, the reason why the the psyops guys who showed up started playing music at first is because there were New, American news media and international news media on the balcony of a nearby motel or something with, um, you know, parabolic mics. And they were afraid that tactical stuff was going to be overheard. Oh. So they just started playing Steve Miller band. So just that, to mask the just sound. Just to mask the sound. You know, if they had played the, if they had played Kenny Loggins, like front to back, like greatest hits of Kenny Loggins, I think the war would have been over within an hour. Well, they started taking requests. And so, <laughs> and so every, you know, and every soldier would be like, oh, you know, it'd be funny, like Strange Days by the Doors or, you know, uh, Panama by Van Halen. Yeah. So at first it was all, or and everyone wanted to play Lee Greenwood, um, God Bless the USA. Mm-hmm. I have a playlist here. Ballad of the Green Berets. Here, I'm, let's pretend you're in the Vatican Embassy and you hear these songs. Which of these songs, I'll name a song and you say whether you stay or you go. Okay, go. You've got another thing coming, Judas Priest. Into it. Yeah, you stay. Blue Collar Man by Styx. Totally into it. Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. No, I won out. We actually did play Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. That's th- three songs in and I won out. <laughs> you didn't last long. <laughs> no, no, no. That's I can put my head under the pillow for the length of that song. Dead Man's Party, Oingo Boingo. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'll hang for that. Don't Look Back by Boston. Yeah, for sure. Electric Spanking of War Babies, Funkadelic. Yes. <laughs> I know. That's awesome. <laughs> this, right? this is a great party. This is playlist is amazing. I'm going to put this in my Heavens on Fire by Kiss. Uh, well, you know, I'm not the biggest Kiss fan, but that's not a bad song. I like that the Army and the Kiss Army are now the same. Yeah. The, the Venn diagram has overlapped. I've always said that, 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 uh, that as the Army becomes more and more motivated by metal and country western, <laughs> that it will just end up being Kiss Army. It's just a battle of whether the Juggalos or the Kiss Army takes over yes. the U.S. Armed Forces first. If I had a rocket launcher, Bruce Cockburn. Oh, okay. This seems like they're just going by funny titles. Right, but but it's got to get, uh, they got to run out of funny titles pretty fast. In my time of dying, Led Zeppelin. Sure. Iron Man, Black Sabbath. Come on, this Obviously. is a great, I know, like, great, we should be playing this for this episode. The nuns are probably moshing at this point. <laughs> Judgment Day by Whitesnake. Oh, no, I'm back under the pillow for that. A lot of songs with jungle in the title because this, this is what the army guys thought was funny. Oh, sure. play Welcome to the Jungle. So Judgment Day by Whitesnake. Jungle, oh, sorry, uh, sorry, Jungle Love by Steve Miller. Totally into that. Yeah. Um, jungle Love. Welcome to the Jungle, obviously. Wait, but that's a different song. And a lot of Paradise City. No More Mr. Nice Guy, Alice Cooper. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Paranoid, Black Sabbath. This is a. This is like pre, it's when metal was still heavy metal rather than, I mean, I think these days you would just hear one Slayer song after another or, or some black metal from Norway. The guys would be, well, you know what they'd be doing? They'd be playing like hip hop. Well, I think in Guantanamo, I think it was a lot of, um, 
ironic. It was like the Barney theme. I think it is what we do now. Oh, just play like the worst. Cause just music. like imagine, um, like you, you have a kid, like three songs by the Wiggles yeah. over the car stereo. And I was ready to, yeah, I would have surrendered to Delta Force. You'd give it up. You'd give up all the locations. And obviously Renegade by Styx, Refugee by Tom Petty. You know, you, you can tell what they're, you shook me all night long. They're going for funny. This means War by Joan Jett. The Party's Over by Journey. They're going for funny. I was at this party in 1989. I just didn't realize that it was a that, that, that it, was it was a, a military a maneuver. Uh, <laughs> maneuver. Yeah, you had no idea. And after a few days, I think um, I think Noriega realizes he's stuck in with nuns. Yeah, like there's there's really no this is boring good way out. He's going to be able to talk his way out once he gets out. He he walks out and. Uh, Surrender, you know, merindo a la fuerza de los Estados Unidos. He, he God, do that more. Why don't you? Why don't you speak Spanish on every episode? I don't. I didn't know you were uh, Jamie Lee Curtis from <laughs> A Fish Called Wanda. I just keep hoping you're going to switch over into Russian. Nastrovia, <laughs> like, <laughs> like John Cleese on the plane. <laughs> uh, and so the invasion ends happily. The CNN audience applauds and switches back to VH1. Right. We become convinced that. Uh, American invasions on TV are a great idea, which the Gulf War does nothing to not me to change. Not me. Later. I was I was I was sitting shaking my fist. Just you and Damien are mad. Yeah, I was listening to Refugee by Tom Petty, but but totally mad. But you've already mentioned what what you know people of our political stripe thought was one of the most pernicious things about this. Not just that it was on TV and had great ratings, but that it was called. Operation Just Cause. Just seemed so cynical, so it's on the nose. Corny. Just in case you're wondering if this was a just cause, hey, it's right in the Chiron at the bottom of the screen. Right. It is. Um, and it made me feel like the people that that get to name those things uh, had no sense of humor anymore. That like, was that was not the first name for the Panamanian invasion. Uh, it was originally called. Operation Blue Spoon. See, now that's a great operation name. Operation Blue Spoon? You'd prefer that? I think that's so cool. That sounds like a special ops. Operation Just Cause just seems like Blue some Spoon, dignity battalion. Blue Spoon, it's for, it's, for, it's for no one, right? It's right. for I mean, it's, for, it's not for the public. Like, you'd have to be one of the 20 insiders on the E-Ring of the Pentagon who know what Operation Blue Spoon is. I feel is. like I would write a song called Operation Blue Spoon. The problem, yeah, it's not too late. Yeah. The problem is that during the run-up to the invasion, um, the Pentagon is getting more TV aware. General James Lindsay, commander of Special Operations Command, calls the operations officer. Because there's a bunch of mid-level Pentagon guys who work for the Joint Chiefs who are coming up with these names. And he calls and says, do you want your grandchildren to say you were in Blue Spoon? Yes. See, but they don't think so. They think it sounds trivial. Well, that's the thing about it. Operation name. name. A secret name. Yeah, you call it like Operation Candlestick, and it ends up being like the carpet bombing of a of like 10 villages. Well, here's the thing. Like those names go back to the Germans in World War One. They were the first ones to pick, you know, to say, you know, we're not going to call this the... You know, the right. uh, the offensive to o- take... Operation 4. To take whatever Berg... Yeah, or right. Operation 4 or the date... We're going to give it a one-word name, and we're going to say this is Operation Kreuzberg or Barbarossa right. or, you know. Operation Valkyrie, the, the plot to kill Hitler, was a great operation name. Although and, and, a, and a great operation. Yeah. I mean, it didn't, it didn't succeed, right. obviously, in our timeline. Um, They'd call it Blue Spoon. Maybe we'd have a different outcome. It's run by a guy with an eye patch. That operation has a lot to like about it. So the, so the Germans were the ones that started naming operations uh, like to keep the— to keep them secret? Because if your operation is named Operation October 4th, and that falls into enemy hands... <laughs> hey, when's, it, when's Operation October 4th going to be? It's counterintelligence. It's actually on February 30th, you know, 29th. Oh, February 39th. <laughs> on the 9th of never. So it was, it was just, you know, German commanders planning the Western Front in 1918 who, who were the ones who kind of gave us the modern era by saying, no, no, this should be Operation Archangel. I love that. Just something from mythology, like, you know, and thereby creating the Robert Ludlum, you know, the whole James Bond era we live in. Sure. There are, there are 2000 paperbacks that would not have titles if it weren't for whoever those mid-level German commanders were. I mean, they weren't the ones who decided you had to put 
initiative or ultimatum right. or something. We, we hadn't got to the second word yet, but they had figured that out. And, uh, and so that caught on, especially, you know, Winston Churchill great, had written a four-volume history of the Germans in World War I, and so he was very aware of how important this should be, and he had very strong ideas about what codenames should be used in the Second so World War. So is this War. like Eisenhower figuring out the interstate highway system by watching the German Autobahn? Like, Churchill came back and said, listen, I've figured out how to name operations. It's going to be so cool. <laughs> Check it out. And he actually wrote down principles and sent this to his generals. You know, this is the prime minister, and he's saying, hey, operations in which large number of men may lose their, li- may lose their lives should not have a boastful or overconfident sentiment. Because well you don't want to you don't want to say tell a, a thousand moms that right. your son died in Operation Never Fail. S- yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Operation Your Son Lives. They shouldn't be frivolous because then um you'd you'd have to tell some widow or mother, Churchill noted, that her son was killed in Operation Bunny Hug or Ballyhoo. Like it's gotta sound good on a on a we were to inform telegram. What, Churchill said Operation Bunny Hug? That's his idea of a of a no go name. Because that sounds like a greenlit Comedy Central animated <laughs> show now. That's right? the name of my improv group. Operation Bunny but Hug. It sounds like you would like Bunny Hug. It's a blue spoon type uh it, it, its meaninglessness makes it perfect. Well, but Bunny Hug isn't meaningless. Oh, you think it's too Bunny cute? Hug is cute, right? It 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 does suggest well, there's a lot of irony in it, right? Because if you're if you're killing people and calling it a bunny hug. Ooh, that's not what you mean, or it is what you mean. The U.S. mostly started using um, colors, Operation Indigo. And then when they ran out of colors, the Joint Chiefs approved like a, a, a pre-written code word index that each each theater got assigned blocks of cool, right. masculine sounding, common but not too common nouns. You know, you you get, you know, the European theater gets market, Pacific theater gets flintlock, for example. Um and Churchill actually uh, w- would veto names. Um, They'd th- come across his desk and he's like, no, 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 nope. no. Nope. No. We are not doing soap suds, for example, which is what the, some American bomber raid on Romanian oil fields was going to be called. Um, I'm reading from... Boy, this seems like uh, Churchill's down in the weeds about some stuff that he should be thinking at a higher <laughs> he level. Should, he should give that to, a, to an assistant. Uh, no, soap suds, we're not going to do Too many soap suds. We shall blood, sweat, soap suds, and tears. I'm reading from an article by military historian Gregory Siminski, who in the 90s wrote kind of the definitive history of 20th century military operation naming. The Normandy invasion, which eventually was called... Overlord, Overlord, perfect name. Yeah, that's heavy. Because it worked. I mean, if it had failed. <laughs> You'd look like a real dummy. Kind of a bummer. Operation 500-pound um, gorilla. But uh, originally, the operation was going to be called, uh, you know, it was it was a, a combination of two plans that had previously been drawn up, 1942's Sledgehammer and 1943's Roundup. Sledgehammer. You switched over to... uh, Oh, no, you were doing Peter Gabriel before, right? Uh, And so as a result, they decided to combine it, and it was going to be called Roundhammer. And Churchill absolutely did not want... Roundhammer's pretty good, although it sounds a little bit like um, some kind of Nordic... Like a like a mythical Nordic town. Yeah, you don't want to go too Germanic when you're invading, Uh hopefully, when you're hopefully getting all the way to Berlin. Right. Um, the thing about all these names is they were only used internally. I mean, today we all know Operation Sea Lion never happened. Operation Overlord was a huge success. But at the time, these never made the papers, even after the fact. Well, wasn't this part of your uh, your entry in the omnibus about the, the crossword puzzle revelations of all of these names? Exactly. That's why it freaked them out that suddenly Utah and Omaha and Overlord are appearing in the Daily Telegraph crossword or whatever it was, because nobody was supposed to know these. Although the name doesn't give anything away, but it did suggest like a... That somebody's interpreting for for someone else who might have part of the answer, yeah. Um, but in the years following World War II, this naming gets a little more public, because obviously, if you're, if you're already selecting cool names, it's a bummer that nobody gets to hear them, right? Right, right. Um, the guy who... The Operation guy who, Arclight. The guy heading the uh, A-bomb tests on... Um, on Bikini Atoll, for example, was very, very carefully chose Operation Crossroads for the name. You know, it's the crossroads of the Pacific, but also it's the crossroads of a new era in warfare, et cetera, et cetera. He was very proud that he had thought of this and he wanted to, you know, and he, he, he used it in Senate testimony. And so news articles began to include accounts of these words. Right. Um, 
It didn't carry over in Korea. Uh, MacArthur just used the code word list, but when... So that's why you got like Operation Chromite or whatever, just a meaningless name. But when Ridgeway replaced him, he decided this could be a propaganda tool, and he just chose very violent, aggressive nicknames. Operation Killer, Operation Thunderbolt, Operation Dauntless. Right, like uh, one of the one of the bombing campaigns of uh, North Vietnam was called Operation Rolling Thunder. Well, this was the problem in the Vietnam era. They decided they decided to go the other way. Johnson started complaining that the names were too violent, you know, because now you got all these guys on the ground trying to one up each other with their gung ho names. Right, Operation Ripper, Operation Masher, right, and Operation L- uh, Flaming Children, and LB. <laughs> right. Well, that's the problem. LBJ's dealing with. Shrinking approval ratings at home. People don't like the idea of the war as visceral and violent. That's what's that's what's leading on the news. So he gets mad, and Westmoreland has to scale back the names to uh, you know be a little more neutral. You know, just proper names. Right. Um, Operation Niagara still suggests a cascade of bombs. Yes. On the North Vietnamese, but it's it it you know it doesn't it doesn't make us sound like bloodthirsty butchers. <laughs> right. <laughs> it seems fun, like a honeymoon spot. After Vietnam, uh, the U.S. practice becomes to semi-automate these names. Um, a system called NICA is invented in 1975. That's the nickname for the code word nickname and exercise term system, the CWNAETS, which uh, it doesn't choose, it doesn't spit out a nickname for your operation, but it's a database. Now, the, the hurricane naming conventions, are those chosen by a, an algorithm, or does every year, uh, does a, a, like a committee sit down and say, this one's going to be called Lawrence? Every year a committee makes a full alphabet, and they oh. know they're not going to get to W, but they do it anyway. Wow. I think the big change there was that it used to be all women's names. As and- it should be, as God intended. <laughs> well, I feel like it's important representation. How many storm gods in mythology are women? None. Yeah, that's right. But all storm gods in America used to be, and now we've got Hugo and these things that are like, what? I think the idea is it was, you know, it was- uh, Should be called Daphne. It was considered misogynist to, to continue to associate a force of, of destruction with, with female energy. Hmm. Why not make sure every other one is, is Andrew? Well, that hasn't been my experience in the dating world. <laughs> See, this is exactly the kind of hilarious Johnny Carson take <laughs> that they are hoping to avoid by putting male names on the hurricane wah, list. Wah. So what they did with the, uh, what the military did with their naming operations is that they divided the alphabet into sequences and assigned one of these two letter sequences to the 24 component DOD, uh, agencies and commands worldwide. You know, this started in seventy five. Yeah, so the you, you know U.S. Atlantic Command gets assigned. It's like the Dewey Decimal System. Mm-hmm. Okay, U.S. Atlantic Com, you get A G through A L, E S through E Z, J G through G L. They get these segments of the alphabet, and they have to pick. And they they uh, their segment ends with U M through U R, which is why they chose Urgent Fury, or you know some staff officer somewhere recommended Urgent Fury as the name for the Grenada invention uh, uh, invasion. They're going through a specific... Urgent fury. Think how urgent it was to invade, <laughs> and furious it was to invade Grenada in 1983. Like, that's exactly when it starts sounding super dumb. Like, Blue Spoon is really cool. Urgent fury? It sounds like, it sounds like a comic book, and by a comic, a comic book by an unimaginative writer. But here's the problem. In the era of 24-hour cable news, you know who loved this stuff is news anchors who now get to sound like a Robert Ludlum book right. every time they say... The Pentagon could not believe how often people started saying Just Cause. Operation Urgent Fury. Because they just thought of it as an internal thing where if anybody asks, it sounds cool. Right. Like, that's all they were thinking. They had no idea that these bozos on CNN were, or, you know, that some guy, some guy doing a stand-up in front of a, an embassy is going to want to say Operation Just Cause. Here I am in front of the embassy. Operation Just Cause. We are in day three of Operation Just Cause. Because it makes them feel like they are, you know, Delta Force operatives because they know the secret super code word. You remember the the, uh, war journalist character from Doonesbury who, like, parodied exactly that kind of, um, like, flak jacket wearing uh, war correspondent who, you know, who loved the jargon and who... Yeah, really situated himself in conflicts as a 
you know, somehow as a participant, even though. Imagine the Pentagon pivoting from Vietnam era thinking where the, the liberal press is the medium to realizing how quickly they could co-opt these guys, yeah. you know? And and you get the whole practice of embedding journalists because that's actually not dangerous. That's the best thing you can do because these guys love to feel like they are part of the troops. And that's what we see in the in the— the first Gulf War is the complete neutering of uh, independent journalists uh, as they become just sort of, I don't know, embedded tools of the, of the military. No one's, no one's allowed off the reservation. You know? or so, I, I guess we don't say that anymore. Uh, uh, no one's allowed off, off the, base. Off base. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a military base or a baseball base. But Just Cause is the pivot on which this turns, in which uh, – you know, CENTCOM realizes, see, I just, I said CENTCOM and I felt so cool wow, for a that second. Is cool. I felt cool too. Say it again. CENTCOM. Say it in Spanish. El CENTCOMO. <laughs> and they realize that uh, this kind of, uh, what, contact coolness is uh, incredibly valuable. And so a lot of thought starts going into how these things get named. It's not just one guy being like, hey, uh, you know, Captain Lopez, let's not use Blue Spoon anymore. Think of something cool. Uh, they long conversations start to happen. Memos go back and forth leading into Desert Storm. That was not the original name for Desert Shield. It was originally Peninsula Shield because I think uh, maybe PE was the right prefix and Schwarzkopf didn't like that. It became Crescent Shield because they thought if you give it a Islamic symbol, sure. our Saudi Arabian allies will, will see us as a force for good in the region sure. and not a force of uh, you know Western meddling crusaders. But that didn't read very well either, not compared to Desert Storm. Right. Once once they realized how cool Desert Shield and then Desert Storm, and it had a sequel. Yeah. Like you could- Desert Storm For two. TV viewers, Desert, well, yeah, it, it eventually <laughs> had that. But Desert Shield turned to Desert Storm. Yeah. And for American movie franchise audiences, you were like, oh, hell yeah, I love Desert Shield. Yeah, let's up it. Let's turn it, let's tune into Desert Storm let's now. Let's crank the volume. And one thing that, uh, uh, thing that happened very quickly is that all these- foreign operations started to get this verb noun kind of a thing like uh you know hmm. you res- operation restore hope yeah operation oh, this just sounds like bad star wars preserve prequels. absolutely uh i don't even remember where all these were restore hope is that is that clinton in somalia yeah maybe promote liberty uphold oh, democracy stop it it just became like what you would think of if you didn't have an idea well, and what's crazy about these, and the thing about the, the thing about the invasion of Panama was that it felt so much like like an operation that was just a training exercise, right? That all of these, the basically it was a training exercise, but everybody got real bullets. Like there was never a threat. If American troops got injured, it was just that they they twisted an ankle in a hole, or maybe you know a couple of people got shot. Uh, but probably by accident. And that became our baseline expectation. Yeah, it really was. That people won't get hurt. But well, that we people, got to do- Americans won't get hurt. Americans won't. But we got to do all the cool stuff. We yeah. got to drop paratroopers. We got to have gunships. We got to have bombs. So it was just a, it was just a way to like expend the ammunition that was about to expire in our, in our uh, ammunition dumps, right? Like, well, let's get all, all this stuff. We're about to retire. Let's blow give this a, up in Nevada. Yeah, one-, one time around. It's ominous to think that what led to the advent of drone technology was not so much the microprocessors that make it possible, but just the Pentagon realizing the public now demands this kind of bloodless war, entertainment right. war on our side. What are the technologies that we can advance to get us there? Right. Five, five Americans die and it's like, we, we, can't, we can't sustain these losses, but, um, but we can spend $30 billion dollars. Uh, and nobody bats an eye. This kind of propagandistic operation naming continues today. Um, after 9-11, the, you know, the immediate decision to invade uh, Taliban-held Afghanistan was at first called infinite justice. Like, boy, that boy Churchill would really you can't one up it. Stab out his cigar. It's on like that a one. schoolyard thing where infinite justice. What are you going to say? Infinity plus one. Uh, and I think, um, it was actually American, it was, you know, the council of American Islamic relations or whatever. It was, it was local Muslim clerics who were like, you know, they're doing the fingers right. to the throat thing. I, like, you don't, on the on Ustis the, J. Exactly. Like this sounds like crusade rhetoric. And that's when it became enduring freedom. Enduring freedom. 
which really is the perfect name for an operation that is now, what, a year, going into year 19, going, uh-huh. into, going into year 20? Truly is enduring. It has really endured. Good job. Yeah. the uh, I mean, all of that naming convention, and particularly like Homeland Security, all that stuff just suggested the sort of anti-intellectualism of that uh, administration and that whole era. Like for anybody to say, yeah, Homeland Security, it just, it sounded so... And nobody there said, hey, have you guys seen Starship Troopers? Yeah, it's like neo-Nazi sounding. Yeah. And, but but to feel to feel like that's the flag you want to raise, it, that was, I think, maybe the a tipping point for me where I felt like there's a real dividing line now between between an administration that would put like thought into making a thing not sound totalitarian versus an administration that would that would say you know what that name doesn't sound totalitarian enough this is maybe the kind of thing we should not be saying on the record lest you know a dignity battalion show up at our door well you know it's one of the reasons that i have fortified this compound because <laughs> There are a few Dignity Battalions I'm already expecting of the sort of uh, 70s porn variety. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they can't get in either. And that concludes Operation Just Cause. Just Cause. Entry 869.ez4510, certificate number 19345. In the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media exists in your era and that you've been a listener to Omnibus long enough that you can stand the sustained liberalism that we've exhibited in this episode. It just makes, God. Just makes me sick even to, even a, to have to do it. We're a couple of snowflake cucks over here with our anti-Bushisms. It doesn't mean that Ken and I are are uh, brainwashed progressives. Far from it. We're free-thinking individualists. We just we're just not persuaded by the invasion of Panama. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know more about us and our personalities, you can go to at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, we keep it all going at Omnibus Project. Uh, I'm on Instagram, so you can see. Me. And in fact, I'm going to take a picture of you, Ken, and I'm going to put it on my Instagram. So if people want to go and look, they can scroll back far enough that they see that you're a real person. They'll finally know. There's uh, plenty of photographic evidence of me. I guess that's right. Well, especially after your recent TV conquering hero status. Now your picture's on the cover of newspapers worldwide. I, I really do think the odds just went up that there are now 50-foot statues of me all over the future. Some of them probably rubble. Hopefully sure. others not. Uh, already already in warehouses uh, owned by tech millionaires. Here stands Ozymandias, King of Kings. Uh, you can email us if you have if you have uh, corrections or addenda. Uh, you can email us if, the, if you have MASH notes for us, if you have naming conventions for our episodes. If you want to play a game of MASH with us. Uh, mansion Apartment, oh, Shark, like or uh, The Hubble. MASH game? What is S? Mansion, apartment, uh, well, you can write to us and tell us what the S stands for in the MASH game. Oh, I have, I, Wait. MASH game or MASH game? You've never played this? MASH? No, what is it? How it's, do you play it? It's just an 80s trapper keeper thing. You draw a spiral. Yeah. And depending on where you stop the spiral, it tells you who you're going to marry and where you're going to live. And it's the most powerful form of divination ever invented by mankind. I'm sorry, I never even heard of it. Ancient, I, I don't think ancient I, peoples used it to find fertile grazing lands and water. No, no, I'm at, I'm at a complete loss. Normally, I, I this might have to be its own omnibus entry. All right. Uh, well, uh, email us at theomnibusproject at gmail. Um, you can go to our Facebook and Reddit fan groups uh, under the Futurelings umbrella. Uh, you can mail us things at PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. And if the if the mood strikes, uh, support the show with a, a financial contribution at patreon.com slash omnibus project. There are lots of uh, bonus materials available only to Patreon supporters. Ken is now opening mail. 
We got a bunch of holiday cards that I didn't open in time that I'm now opening belatedly. Oh, that's nice. This this uh, test says that her cats Pippi and Buster often listen to us, but not her boyfriend. Come on, Bill. Well, uh, I think, Pat, you have a, a New Year's resolution, which is to get Bill to listen to the show and donate to us at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Jennifer appears to be some kind of yoga instructor. Well, pass that you, card over you, here. You keep the card. Yeah, I don't, need to, I don't need to learn anything about yoga, but I do need to learn about yoga instruction. She sent us a bunch of Tillamook Creamery uh, temporary tattoos, hmm. buttons. The Canyon Crest Athletic Club. Let's see where that is. <laughs> It doesn't sound like it's around here. John just cares about his proximity to his nearest yoga pants wearer. But I'm interested in what she sent. Look, she sent us a uh, a Nestle Quick uh, Rabbit. Does the Nestle Quick Rabbit have a name? Uh, I I have no idea. I don't know. Is he the one that kids can see or can't see? That's Snuffleupagus. Oh, um, Canyon Crest Athletic Club is... Oh, it's in the Inland Empire. I would have assumed it was somewhere down in in, uh, Arizona, but it's really... The, The next time you're in the valley... Let's see here. She it's, also sent us. Oh some, wait, it is. It's in Riverside, California. It's not our in, inland empire. Oh no, it's I, their inland I, empire. I, I, I assumed you meant the San Fernando Valley when you said. No, you know, inland empire is what we call that sort of Idaho, Spokane dominated, uh, like Eastern Oregon. I've never had to refer Montana. to it. We, we call that the inland empire. Inland empire. Yeah, oh, I've, I've been saying. I've never been. I don't know what to call that part. Well, now you know. We also got. She has sent us some Buckminster Fuller stickers. We each oh. got one. What what are what's mine of? Uh, it's Bucky saying, "Don't fight forces, use them." Oh, and he's holding up his hand like he's uh, using some telekinesis. Yeah, he's a very old man, and he appears to have powers in this <laughs> in this picture. Not just powers to to create uh, like uninhabitable geodesic domes. <laughs> no, he's a, he's doing uh, he's doing Jedi mind tricks on us mm-hmm. right now, listeners, futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived, given the escalation in military operation naming. The trend line is not great. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may be averted. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to return soon with another entry for you in the Omnibus. <laughs>